Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. And <laughs> <laughs> as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Martin Croft started his professional career at the age of 17, with appearances on Melbourne TV. Initially trained as a classical singer, his first major show was Jesus Christ Superstar for Harry and Miller, touring Australia and New Zealand. This led to a full career in music theatre and opera, first as performer and then adding director, musical director, writer, teacher, event manager and producer to the list. Come From Away, The Phantom of the Opera, Cats, Putting It Together, Joe Starts Again and The Boy From Oz are just a fraction of the shows that Martin has contributed to in multifaceted roles. It was super to catch up with Martin once again and to learn more of his extensive time on various stages and the wisdom garnered from such experience. closest um, she got but my grandparents on both sides were singers all singers and so I started singing when I was 11 um, in in the school choir and then I went 
to singing lessons and I did my first competition in Bendigo, the Bendigo of Stedford. And I sang a brown bird singing at about this level. A brown bird singing. I was terrified. And I hadn't been terrified before, so I was going home in the car and my grandmother said to me, who was very sort of frank, <laughs> she said, what happened? Why did you do that? And I said, I don't know why I did it, but it'll never happen again. And it never did. It never did. And so I did the Sedford circuit for about four or five years. And so is that the story behind that, that track? That yeah, so that was South Street, Ballarat South Street. Right, yeah. And um, that year I entered, everything I entered, which was uh, I was eligible for, was four competitions, four uh, sections, and I won them all. And so I was invited back to the winner's concert where the Sun Aria was, you know, the star of the night. But I was the first junior to ever perform in the winner's concert wow. in uh, Her Majesty's Theatre in Ballarat. And uh, so, yes, Non Nobis Domine was for the religious section, spiritual songs. And you won? And I won, yeah. Excellent. I won all four I won all four things. I think I still hold the record for that, for winning every section that I went in for. And I sent it to um, Brian Castle's Onion last night and Geraldine yeah. and yesterday, and uh, I, said, I just sent it and I said, Geraldine, who, can you ask Brian who this is? <laughs> <laughs> to be and he said, I have no idea. And I said, it's me. <laughs> and uh, so I sent him all the, all the other little tracks that I've got from that recording because it's very scratched. Yeah. They used to uh, do a reel-to-reel tape in the wings and then you could buy it on on a 78 at the end. Merchants are starting Yeah. What sort of modelling did your mum do? She was... Ah, so this was in England before we came to Australia. She was like a Diana Dawes type figure, you know, big bosoms and yeah, hips and everything. And when, when the movies started to die off and television came in in England, all the big J. Arthur Rank theatre palaces were turned into bingo houses. But they were sort of glamorous. They were like uh, casinos, you know, people would get dressed up in dinner suits. And it was right when all the Arabs first came into London with a lot of money. So my mother was the the top model for J. Arthur Rank, and she would be on stage. She'd be the woman on stage. She'd hold up the numbers when they were called out. She'd hold them up and and walk over to this big thing and hang them on the the numbers. You know, so it was legs eleven, and she'd have the big number eleven. And so she was the star of of the J. Arthur Rank. And I used to go and I used to do her hair, <laughs> and then mum and uh, dad and I'd go and meet her between sessions on a Saturday and we'd have egg chips and baked beans with tomato sauce. <laughs> it's a very English. Uh, very meal, English. Very Shirley Valentine. Very, very English, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. Do you have any siblings? <clears throat> no, not by birth. Right. But I grew up with a lot of siblings. My parents fostered. In England, I grew up where I was the only white child in uh, a family of black Jamaican kids. So mum and dad would foster them while their parents went back to Jamaica to do their university degrees. So we'd have them for a year or two years or however long their degree was. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, yeah, so often I'd have four or five black brothers and sisters. Brilliant. Yeah. So what brought about the move to Australia? <laughs> I think the official family story is, you know, just for a better life. But uh, my mother, in her uh, 
job that she was doing met a lot of very eligible men. <laughs> so we were always going on holiday, mother and I, right. <coughs> meeting um, her beau at the time. So I think this was uh, a thing that Dad put the, his foot down and said, we're going to Australia and you're going to stop modelling and or else we're going to split up. Because there were a couple of times where Dad was at the top of the stairs in England with his suitcases packed and saying goodbye. Wow. Um, yeah, so I think we came to Australia just to sort of sort Mother out. <laughs> <laughs> so, to speak. so that was the, uh, the big time of immigration, I guess, with the 10-pound poms. 10-pound poms, yep. yeah. And you settled in Geelong, is that right? Ocean Grove. Ocean Grove first time. Yeah. My grandfather, my uh, maternal grandfather, who we came out with, it was my grandmother, my grandfather, mum, dad and me, just the five of us. And as we were leaving the docks in Southampton, they played Vera Lynn singing We'll Meet Again. Can you believe it, how cruel that was? Yeah. Um, But so we came out because granddad's brother lived in Ocean Grove and they hadn't seen each other for 32 years. So that was our, you know, our sort of, Grounding, so we lived in Geelong in Ocean Grove. So I went from London, heavy, heavy, heavy East London, to um, you know the paradise of Ocean Grove, sun, sea, and surf. Yeah, yeah, loved it. None of us ever regretted it, not for a second. Geelong eventually. Yes, then we moved into Geelong because I wanted to go to a school that did shows, and the Queenscliff High School, which isn't there anymore, uh, didn't do shows. So we moved into Geelong so I could go to Norlane High School, which was the, the sort of the naughty school of, the, uh, of Geelong, where kids were always in trouble. But they did good shows. They always had a great music program and a great music teacher or, or English teacher was interested in theatre and they did really great shows. So where did this proclivity to perform come from? You were, it was just innate? I mean, well, I think it's from my grandparents. Right. My, gra- my grandmother was very much into it. She was also a violinist. She played at Albert Hall in London before we immigrated. Um, so that sort of started. And then we heard an ad. Uh, well, no, it wasn't an ad. It was on, tele- on uh, radio, 2GB. Uh, no, 2GB, whatever it was, 3GB, whatever the Geelong station is, 3GL. And um, of this group called the Jesoda Juniors, Geelong Society of Operatic and Dramatic Art Junior Players. And they were talking about this group that they had about 60, 75 kids who rehearsed and did concerts. And so I, I turned up on this Saturday afternoon and sang and got in. And that's, that's really where it all started um, from a sort of the performing shows mentality. I sort of thought I'd just be a singer, I suppose. Um, but yeah, then we did you know pantos and things. My first role was the Mock Turtle in Alice in Wonderland. Um, but that, they've been going for 57 years now, that group. Yeah, Still the same. Community theatre has played such a, a vital part in many professions. Yeah, yeah. Well, especially in those days, it was, the only, you know, it was before, as you know, it was before Whopper or... VCA. Uh, before you studied anywhere, you, you know, you, t- you had your singing teacher and your dancing teacher, and if you were lucky, there was somebody who could teach you a bit of acting. Um, so you had to do it all yourself. And I just did it all my school life, and I taught myself the piano so sometimes I'd be musical directing and sometimes I'd be accompanying and sometimes I'd be singing and and back in those days really you just saw an ad in the paper a big ad in the paper that said you know auditions for blah 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 on such and such a date turn up at you know 10 o'clock at the Princess Theatre and which I did for Superstar 
and I think I was number 271 and they said go away and come back at four o'clock this afternoon and so I did and I got it and that was it really you know from finishing school it was about a year and I I really don't know what I thought I was going to do I always knew I was going to be in theatre but I didn't really know how I was going to do it until this ad came along, I went, "Oh, that's oh yeah, that's I'll just get in that show." I just I just assumed that I would get in the show, and um, you know, within three months, I was on my first plane and straight to Sydney, and you know, that was it. And I never never moved back home again. Do you remember what you sang for that superstar audition? I sang, "So you gotta have friends." I think that was one. Um, because I didn't know any pop songs. I'd studied to be a classical singer. That was my thing. I was going to do opera. Um, you know, like as you heard on that non-nobis domine, I was very classical. Yeah. And, but I got in because obviously I needed an understudy for Pontius Pilate and I had the weight in my voice for that. So I spent, you know, a good sort of three, six months unclassicalizing so I could be poppy enough for Jesus Christ Superstar Rock and Roll. But there were a lot. I like that's where I first met Robin, Arthur, and Gary Young. We yeah. were in it together, and you know we were all trained singers. So um, anybody who thinks you don't need to be a trained singer of some sort, you know, even to be in a rock and roll show, you, know, you do. We need the technique to support you eight times a week. Absolutely, absolutely. And when you're not feeling well, you know, because you didn't have understudies very much in those days, or we, you know, I was an understudy at nineteen <laughs> for Pontius Pilate, but I ended up playing it for thirteen weeks. Right in uh, New Zealand because Rachel Park got nodules and Harry flew out to see me no rehearsal I had had no rehearsal at all I hadn't had a music rehearsal I hadn't had a staging rehearsal I hadn't tried on the costumes and I went off for opening night in Wellington and because in those days you just stood in the wings and watched you just learned you know and I got a phone call (laughs) drug sex and rock and roll I got a phone call um on the landline at about three o'clock in the afternoon on the, the opening day because we didn't go in for opening rehearsals or anything in those days and they just said oh you're on tonight race and I was stoned out of my mind <laughs> <laughs> we'd just been smoking joints all day yeah and so I went in and and you know at the half hour call did a quick sort of go over here go over there and 32 mics with leads that's right, you had all that lead yeah. choreography. So we had the lead choreography as well. Um, but I did it and um, got a nice review and stayed on for 13 weeks till Ray came back. It probably helped greatly with your anxiety uh, <laughs> to go on. Maybe for that's where it started. <laughs> yeah. So was that the first big revival of uh, Superstar? Yeah, it was the one, it was 1975. Right. So after the 1972 73 version, um, it closed for a year and then because that set couldn't tour, so they designed a new set. And, uh, uh, yeah, so we went into full rehearsal. So it was Trevor and John were still in it. Um, Stacey Testro was Mary Magdalene. Was she really? She was Mary Magdalene for uh, New Zealand, and then uh, Chrissy Hammond took over for Australia when we came back to Australia. Yeah, so that was the new set. But there were quite a handful of people who'd been in the original production and then quite a few of us who were recast. You're getting some TV gigs um, performing at variety shows, aren't you, around that time? Yeah, I was. As a a little boy, I'd 
uh, you know, with my boy soprano voice, which, you know, as you would have heard, wasn't like a choir boy soprano. It was like a woman's voice. So it was a little, it was a little uh, novelty, I guess. So I was doing things like Brian and the Juniors, which I don't know whether you remember, you yeah. know, where Deb and everybody started out. And uh, Young Talent Time, I was doing all the competition sides of that. And then my voice, when my voice changed, I did Young Talent Time and Showcase with Maria Mercedes. And, um, and then I was hailed as the next Dennis Walter. <laughs> which is funny because Dennis is from Geelong too and we'd he always is. been um, you know a little bit competitive in Geelong because he's a bit older than me but um, yeah so that was funny you could have been a young talent timer I could well I was just a little bit too old by the time I could go into young talent time but I was supposed to go into Brian and the Juniors I was training at their school they had a school called Irvine Productions in Greville Street Paran every Wednesday night and Saturday morning and you had to go through that and then you might be invited into the troupe on television and I was about to be invited when it got cancelled so I would have been in just after Deb I think and sliding doors I mean it could have been a completely different career well yeah who knows who knows you know it was Philip it was me Philip Gould Jane Scarley Debbie as she was then Um, yeah it was an incredible start and you know it was great to know what television was and so out of Brian and the Juniors going on the the, uh, competi- the um, competition part of it um, I got some gigs got some paid gigs people would ring up and say oh can Martin come and sing at the golf club in Essendon on Saturday night you know and you got 16 pound or dollars whatever it was and so I started to make a little bit of money and put a little act together you know and take it on the road yeah yeah. So, Martin, is there no business like show business? I don't think there is a business like show business. Uh, the thing with it is that you can, if you really want to, I guess, you can make yourself a part of it in any way you want, you know, along the way. If you're interested in directing, you can do some of that as well. If you're interested in producing, you can do some of that. You can choreograph, you can stage, you know, you can create. So... Um, the different avenues that are in the business is what I've, you know, that I think that's why I'm a, I'm a stayer, I guess. You know, I'm not a, a, a marquee name, but I'm known in the business for, you know, doing what I do, I guess. And, um, and having stayed at it, I've never had another job, which is incredible. Oh, well, that's to lie. I did sell timeshare for a little while in London (laughs) Uh, for my sins Um, but yeah I've always I've always been in work in the industry um, which is pretty lucky yeah there's been tremendous longevity in your career I think because you've been willing to diversify yeah um, for I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing you know maybe if I'd maybe a jack of all trades well you're still here yeah I'm still here and I I was thinking about it, you know, when I was thinking that we we're going to be talking, that even when I was young, I never wanted to be a star. I didn't really want to be in the ensemble or the choruses that it was in, but because I, I wanted to do things that I could excel at, you know, like I wanted to do good roles. I wanted to do things that had a good song in it and all that. But the, I, really, I can't ever remember thinking I want to be a star. I just, I wanted to play those roles that maybe might make you a star. Yeah. But that was never my driving ambition, I don't think, unless I'm fooling myself. <laughs> um, but I knew that I wanted to do 
you know, I wanted to be a featured player at the least. Yeah. It's a tough industry though, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. You see a lot of friends and colleagues, you know, who do one, two, three, four, five shows even, and then they've gone, you know, they just disappear and you're like, oh, I wonder what happened to so-and-so. And they were talented, you know, even back to the superstar days. There's still quite a few of, of that cast that I keep up with, but there's a lot of people who were really great, but, you know, disappeared. And others who were in it, like Air Supply, they were in it before they were Air Supply, Graham and Russell. In that superstar, yeah? Yeah, yeah, they came in and bought us all an LP of Love and Other Bruises and said, what do you think? You know, what do you think of this song? Do you think it's any good? And all <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Russell was covering Judas. Yeah. So there were great people, but you do see, you know, a lot of people fall by the wayside. But I also think, I often watch movies and I love watching the credits and you know and you see those name after name after name of people who have obviously got a little featured role in a film and think this is it you know I'm going to make you know this is and really and what, where do they go what happens to them yeah you know so it is difficult and particularly when people start having families and financial obligations and things like it that gets very hard but as I say I was just very lucky I, I just went from job to job so I didn't uh yeah, I didn't really have to do anything else. There's a land, so I'm told, where I'll find a field of gold. But here I'll stay with you. And they say there's a land filled with clover. Where the sun wears a smile all day through But I know well they're wrong It's here I belong So here I'll stay I can find loving you And so here I'll stay If I've no will to go from home Or have no urge the seas to roam Or turn my back on a distant star and never burn to wander far It's not because of fear It's because my goal is clear But I know well they're wrong It's here I belong Stay with you 
I can find loving you. And so here I'll stay. Who were your idols growing up? Performance-wise? Yeah. Uh... Jill Perryman, uh, Tony Lamont, <laughs> Gloria Dawn, Nancy Hayes, those sort of people. All our local divas. Yeah, I loved them. I loved going to the theatre and I was a naughty little person. I used to come up from Melbourne. Suzanne Steele changed my life with in Man of the Mansion. Yeah. And I used to come up from Geelong on the train and see the shows and then wait outside stage door for the stars to come out. I was a stage door Johnny, but I was even worse than that. I would sneak past. There was a woman, a famous woman at the stage door. I think she was called Gwen, Scottish. Stage door person? Person, yes, sitting there on the stage door. And the switchboard was there in those days at Her Majesty's. And she was notorious for, you know, saying what she thought. And uh, I'd managed, always managed to sneak past. And I'd sneak through. And in those days, you could walk through the, the, the... the flapping doors and then there was another set of doors that went onto the stage now you have to go around the back but I'll just walk straight in or straight onto the stage across and go to dressing room one and see whoever was the star of that thing and walk in and then usually I'd come back and pinch a little something off the set (laughs) I've still got a Perspex ice cube of uh, from Promises Promises that was in the bar set that Nancy was on in the her, her big scene. Well, that's okay. That's subtle. That's not going to be missed. It's no. different if you're taking the yeah. elephant from family. It was family. an ice cube. Yeah. <laughs> a chandelier in my back pocket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I was I was a type... But, you know, I, get to, I got to meet even a Carlo and Sid Charisse and all those people coming out and they were always very in, lovely. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Yeah. 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 We spoke before about technique and having to support yourself eight shows a week. Mm. Vocal care mm. comes into a lot. How, how did you... Look, I'm sure I, that you had the voice to sort of... I don't know. Where, I, I think it's part luck and part that I have had and do still have very good technique. I started classic, as a classical singer. But, um, and I was lucky as a boy soprano. My voice just flipped and I went straight into baritone. I didn't have any... I, it was actually for about a year singing both. Um, but my, te- my teacher was very, you know, standard classical... Uh, Belcanto technique and that I think it's just served me very well because I've never lost my voice ever from strain or, or you know everybody nowadays seems to lose their voice if they do eight shows a week two weeks in a row um, I lost my voice once through laryngitis in London when I just couldn't make a sound um, but that's the only time you know and sometimes I was you know incredible time in the 80s when I was in Les Mis and guesting for the opera company. So um, I would do, sometimes I'd do a, a Marius in the afternoon in Les Mis and a Louis in the evening at the Opera House. Two different styles of singing. Wow. You know? um, because I'd gone back in, Anthony went on holiday, so I went back in and I was really supposed to be doing Angeras. But if the if the cast sort of jigsaw puzzle didn't work out, I could do Angeras or Marius, whatever. But, um, yeah, so I'd be singing, you know, up on the battlements and then 
doing Louise at the Opera House, sometimes on the same day. It requires a lot of mental preparation too, I guess, to put yourself into that character. Look, I guess it, I guess it does, but it was just so much fun. Mm-hmm. I, loved, I loved the fact that I was doing it and that I could do it. And it was just fun. I didn't think about... I didn't really think about the technicalities or worry about it. I, I suppose because I knew I had good technique and my voice was never a problem. So um, I didn't have that sort of baggage on my shoulder of, of how am I going to sound. I just knew that I'd be able to sing it. Um, so it was just fun. It was great fun to do. You know. I guess you sing a show into your voice as well. Like yeah. You develop that musculature. Yeah, that's right. And it suit, both roles suited me vocally as well. So. Um, and being aware of the environment of the show, uh, whether it be you know a three and a half hour sing in Les Mis, although you're not singing all the time, yeah. but it's, it's that's a great right, a lot. time. Yeah. And Miss Saigon, I believe, had a, a, a steep rake. Oh, Miss Saigon in London was yeah. crazy, yeah. crazy. I actually did my, uh, what you call it, your, your knee, one, the cricket, cruise ship ligament yes. or something, on that rake. And it wasn't during the, it was during the show, I was laying in the wings, as I did every night, listening to Leia Salonga, with that angelic voice singing, um, you, you will be who you want to be, you, you know, at the end of the the first act. And then we all had to get up and become refugees going off into the distance for the last part of the the first act. And as I got up, I didn't turn my foot. I turned my body, but didn't turn my foot. And my knee just went, but it was because of the rake, because my, my foot wouldn't turn it just went to turn naturally and it had to turn up so I just went but the rake was crazy um, gorgeous set though I mean it was beautiful yeah you have to put up with all those sort of things yeah you were in the unique position I think in that you've been part of the, all of those mega music the mega yeah. juggernauts Cats Les Mis Phantom Miss Saigon mm. yeah and back you know it was Superstar was a mega as yeah. well yeah. and Godspell was considered you know it was a big hit but wasn't a mega musical but it was of that time you know hugely successful so yeah and I uh, I did Les Mis here I did Les Mis in San Francisco and I've resident directed it twice um, once for the international company where we went through all through Asia and South Africa um, so I know that show <laughs> back to front um, and I've directed it once for a, a community theatre as well. And uh, your Growl Tiger and Cats? Growl, I started off as Growl Tiger uh, at the Princess here for the first revival. Uh, and that company then went on to uh, the first Asian tour of Cats. And I, but I left and went back to Phantom. Um, but I, yes, that was uh, Gus Growl Tiger the first time. And then I've done two seasons as Deuteronomy as well right overseas yeah you're a real company man within the Macintosh organisation I was yeah I was I, I was very lucky Cameron you know well yeah I was lucky but I I put the work in too yeah, you know he knew that I was reliable and, and good yeah and, and he was lovely there was um, when I was doing Phantom when I was in New Zealand with um, the company of Phantom and we were I was uh, Andre and John Ewing was Firmin and they were doing that uh, anniversary Concert, uh, version of Les Mis and I thought people said oh you should go you should go for um, Javert now you know you'd be going to Javert and I thought oh, I don't know I don't think I'm really right for it but it's a good acting role and so I got talked into auditioning and then 
I did an audition in the very early days of sending tapes. And I remember Gary Young was over there because he was a resident director at that time of the show. And uh, he did a tape and sent it to Cameron. And Cameron sent me a beautiful personal letter to the theatre um, saying, your voice is just too beautiful for this role. I love, I love your voice, but it's just too beautiful for it. Meaning it was too lyrical, yeah. you know. Um, whether he was being nice or whatever, I don't know. But um, I knew that I wasn't really right for it. Um, but it was lovely of him to take the time, you know. Mm. Do you have a favourite role from all of those big shows that you've played? Look, I, I played The Phantom quite a, a few times and I loved that. It's just such a great, great show off. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that last scene is such a fantastic... It's not really music of the night. It's the last scene for an, you know for an actor, and I like to think of myself as being a, a singer, actor, actor, singer, whatever. But that last seven minutes is is very exciting to play. Yeah. Um, it makes up for some of the other parts of it, which aren't so much fun. But um, yeah, I loved doing that, and I loved doing Algeras. I loved singing that. I did that when I went back and guested for Anthony when he was on holiday, and I played it quite a lot in in San Francisco as well. Yeah, that was they were they were good roles. But the role that I wish I'd done was Sweeney. I'd love to do Sweeney. All right. Oh, well, there's still time, I suppose. But you know, sixty-five, darling. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he's been in Australia for a very long, <laughs> for a very time. long time. Yeah. What I so clearly could see, though I love. I will always be 
fan of auditions. Hate them. Hate, yeah, hate I think them. All, all performers do. Yeah, I hate them. I do anything. I, you know, I was lucky not to have to do very many. Uh, and we didn't, you know, the, the, the time wasn't where you ended up. Even Les Mis, the original company of Les Mis, we didn't go back like eight times like people are doing now. You know, it was twice. We got through the first round and then Trevor and everybody was out and you saw them. Um, that's my memory of it anyway. But yeah, I just find them very stressful, <laughs> as everybody does. And, you know, I do a lot of teaching with um, on audition technique and there is no easy way around it. it. If we could find a better way of doing it, of finding, you know, what people can do, then we would because it's it's not the perfect way either, you know, from either the people doing the audition or the creative side of it. Because somebody can come in and do a great audition yeah. and they never get any better. Yeah. That's as good as they're going to get. Yeah. Um, so you have to learn to read potential too because somebody who's not quite right but has got the right essence about them can then blossom into it. You know. Um, so yeah, so it's not a perfect situation on either side of the table ever. Why do they tend to be more extended now, you know, with actors going back six, seven, eight times? Uh, I think the Americans, and the, particularly the Americans, and, but the English as well, they have a much tighter hold on everything now than they used to. Um, every single nuance they wanted, can, they, you know, can you re- get them to redo that because that and you know. Um, and sometimes you just think, oh, haven't they done enough? <laughs> They've shown you, you know. Um, you know, they st- and sometimes people start rehearsing people in the audition, and it's like, well, that's what rehearsals are for. Yeah. You know, it's not to try and get them to be the role in the next five minutes of their audition. It's to find out whether we think they're, they're capable of it, and you can pretty much do that after three, I think. Yeah. I think. Um, I guess it's a huge investment for the producers too, financially, and they huge. want to make sure they've got the, the right person yeah, for the gig. but it, the actual uh, logistics of an audition are expensive too. Yeah. You know, um, audition rooms and things, that they're a lot of money. We should have all bought land and <laughs> built studios because they're expensive to rehearse, yeah. you know, and then you've got the pre-production before you've got a single ticket money coming in. You, you know, you've got... S- sometimes six weeks in the rehearsal room but God knows how much are they so it's expensive this old business of show <clears throat> a perk of the job I think is the extensive touring that you've done yeah being able to see many yeah. different places yeah I've been yeah and in that way I've been lucky to you know work in England and America and all through Asia and the Middle East um, South Africa you know, and all Australia New Zealand um and uh, parts of Europe as well. So, yeah, I've been very lucky with that. Uh, does it get tiring after a while, yeah, getting out of a case? Yeah. It does. It does. I, I'm not really into it anymore. Um, I'd have to, you know, for a short burst of something, it would be fine. But I don't really want to spend a, you know, a year away from home. I'm married now. and um, Yeah, and, and it took a toll on relationships. There's no doubt about that. Um, it's hard to be away from people, for, yeah. you know. And if we were overseas, as I was with the Ritz Company quite a lot, um, <clears throat> we were away. We were away. We weren't just interstate and could take a quick flight home for the weekend if we needed to patch up a <laughs> something or other. Um, 
yeah, we were, you know, Hawaii. I mean, we were Hawaii for sometimes 18 months. Yeah. You know, that's a long time. As your genial host, may I offer a toast to the wine buying guests on my right. Hooray for the wine buyers! Yeah, break out the cooking cherry for the old band leader. <clears throat> may his bank account grow, heavy laden with dough. May he spend it in here every night. In this night in its glory, you people so loyal, so true, puts me in mind of a story. Tell us about it, pray do. The people in the ballroom were stuffy and arty, so I began to get just a little bit frayed. I sneaked into the kitchen, I dug me a party, the waiter and the porter, and the secretary I peeped into the parlor to see what was a hatching, in time to hear the hostess suggest a charade. But was in the pantry, a laughing and scratching, a waiter and the porter, and the upstairs maid. When they heard the music at the orchestra play, the waiter and the porter grabbed a hold of the maid. Then they all proceeded to go into a club. Hot diggity dog. Never I'm invited to somebody body. I ain't a gonna watch any holiday. You'll find him in the kitchen, applauding his buddies. A waiter and the porter. Let's talk about the Ritz Company because that is a, um, a venture that you had away mm. from the big commercial musicals. Mm. Yeah. We, we were doing, Gary, it's Gary Young, Jackie Reese and myself, and <clears throat> we actually met, Gary and I met in Superstar and then after that we you know, did some various shows and we were doing a show, Showboat, <laughs> at a South Sydney Junior Leagues club for David McElroy. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That were the days when you could do those potted musicals oh in clubs. So we were in showboat, and the Gaynor and Magnolia—that's the two Gaylord. Leads, Gaylord and Magnolia were the two leads who were being played by the second place getters of the South Street, not South of the South Sydney Junior Leagues competition talent competition they weren't first prize they were second, second prize. prize and we Jackie uh, that's where we met Jackie and Gary and I and Rob and Arthur we were all in the ensemble and we and Gary Jackie and I just thought if this is what it's come to <laughs> we'd better do something um, so we uh, yeah we, we started putting this little act together as everybody was you know everybody always does in shows because you're you know, bored and you want something else to do artistically and uh, so we were doing putting together O Coward an old Coward review and trying to shop it around a little bit and um, but it became very hard to get the rights to the show and, and people said look Cowdy Custard's just been on so you, you know the market's probably saturated with Noel Coward so but you guys are great together why don't you put an act together and that was the days of the, when the clubs were doing really well yeah. in Sydney and so we did, and that's how it started. And we were together for eight years and performed over the world, had television special in Singapore, did three albums. Um, we had a regular spot on the Mike Walsh show and, the, and then the Ray Martin show. Every three weeks we had a 
commercial break to commercial break spot. Um, so yeah, we, we had a, an incredible time and uh, we did it. We had our act, but we also did um, Stunning Here, Stunning Now. And from London, we did Side by Side by Sondheim and traveled that with the Derek, Derek Nimmo's little company all through the Middle East and Southeast Asia. So we, we were doing sort of shows as well as our own act. Yeah, so there's projects that are allowing you to develop other skills as a producer or yeah. as an arranger. Yeah, I did all the vocal arrangements for the, for the act. And uh, yeah, so it, it was incredible. And we were producing it ourselves, whatever it was, um, not the, the, the shows so much, but the our act, we were producing that, you know, and... We, <laughs> it was a very sort of glamorous act. We, you know, uh, the gimmick was glamour and old Hollywood and jazz and um, nostalgia. Yeah, well, sort of, but with an edge, yeah. you know. And uh, everybody always said we were incredibly successful and making bags of money, but it's we weren't. It was expensive. You well, know? the outlay, I suppose. The to, outlay to look that good, to publicise, yeah. and the arrangements, yeah. and um, you know, the three. The three, uh, the seven-minute um, thing on the Mike Walsh show was fantastic exposure, but we had to come up with. Sometimes they'd do it; they'd film it in a way where we had three sections in that seven minutes. So we'd had we'd have three costumes in a seven-minute thing that all had to be coordinated, look fabulous, and you know we didn't get a costume budget for that. Right. Um, so there was a lot of money going out as well as sometimes there was great money coming in, but. Um, it, yeah, we weren't flush, <laughs> which I think is one of the reasons why, in the end, why we we split up. We had to go back and sort of make some more money, and we were, so we all went back into theatre, back on the stage, back on the stage. Yeah. So you'd spent some time overseas with the Ritz Company yep. and various musicals, etc. Uh, what brought you back to Australia? Uh, well, we we hadn't been we'd been away for so long. We wanted to come home. Um, this was in about 83, 84, I think. Um, we wanted to come home and uh, we had some jobs to come back to. And it was a strange time to come home because it was it was the, the start of the AIDS epidemic hitting of Australia. Of course. Um, well, that we knew was hitting Australia. And... Uh, <laughs> I've just having seen that incredible series. It's a sin. Yes, I understand. Um, well, that was that was the year that we were in England. We were in England that year of that story, um, and the effect that it had on so many of us in the industry and the people that we lost. It's un, it's it's hard to explain to people. You know, it's it it brought a cloud over everything. Um, I had lovers who died, um, one, two, three, four, four, you know, and I didn't. Why? Why? You know, all that happened. I had terrible guilt for a long time. I thought that I was... Survivor guilt. Yeah, I absolutely did. And it was just one, it was one of those things. We'd been in Asia and I got really, really sick in Asia. And with some sort of intestinal thing that you get in Asia, particularly in those days, um... And I came back and I lost a huge amount of weight. And I knew that everybody thought that I had AIDS. Yeah. And part of me thought I did too. And But it didn't matter how many tests that I went for and that were negative. In the back of my mind, 
you know, it was like because you'd read something in the paper that's saying, "Oh, it hides in the spinal column or something," right. you know, like a thing. And so you go, "Well, that's what's happened to me. That's what it is. It's going to." Um, so there was a lot of anxiety in the eighties and early nineties uh, around that for me, um, and it it affected my career in a way because I I did get terrible stage fright. I was just waiting t- for something terrible to happen right. for a long time. And you had to you had to think you know that in those days they were talking about the incubation period was anything from you know three to ten years and. I started having a very good time <laughs> in the late seventies, yeah. um, and we didn't know there was anything on the horizon, you know. So we were having a good time for that incubation time, and so I was just very lucky. Um, yeah, so it was it was a weird. T- it's it's been a much bigger presence in my life than I could have ever have imagined, and and that's surviving it. <laughs> yeah, not. Not well, it certainly decimated a lot of the industry, and you wonder what the industry would be like if those, yeah. those people yeah. were still around. Exactly, you know, creative souls and minds that uh, and had ec- so much potential. We're living through echoes of it at the moment with COVID. Well, yeah, yeah. 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 I and I, I, I actually, you know, there's a quite a few of us who actually say it's amazing that we've got this vaccine in a year because it, it affected straight people. Yeah, but it's taken. 30, 40 years and we still haven't got a vaccine for HIV because it's seen as a gay disease. And you, of course, uh, led a lot of uh, fundraising for HIV charities through Oshobi's Care. Yeah, yeah, and actually did the first... That was another thing too, I remember. I think we did the very first fundraiser, the, the um, Paddington, Paddington Green pub right. in maybe 82 something like that maybe it was 84 and there was us the Ritz Company and Judy Kennelly and upstairs they had quite a nice showroom upstairs but it was all a bit secret because it was all there was a, a stigma attached to even trying to raise funds for it or bring it out into the open or talk about it um, so it almost felt sort of dangerous being part of this little concert Fundraiser. trip yeah, yeah. it was it was weird, you know, that was back in the days when, you know, you had to watch who you were drinking, you know, people didn't want to have a cup of tea with you if, in case you... Even if you were gay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think, it, you know, kids nowadays uh, should watch It's a Sin because that's really what it was like. It really was. Thank you. 
saying is that there's a different audience every night so it's it's always different and there there's a certain amount to that but there is you know when you do I did Phantom for four and a half years in three different plots um, and there is no doubt that it is repetitious and you just have to do it you just have to go well I know where I'm supposed to be and I know the amount of energy I'm supposed to put into it and and just try and turn it on and and you know, honestly, not every night you're successful. It, it's not brilliant every night, you know. Um, but you try to make it brilliant. And sometimes people will come and say, oh, my God, that was that was fantastic tonight. And you go, oh, really? It was... I thought it was terrible. And they, oh, no. So you can't even tell yourself sometimes. So I think as long as you're trying your very best, um, there's no particular... For me, there's no particular technique that you can learn... Um, how can you learn it? You just until you're doing it, you can't. You know, you can't in a studio pretend that you're doing two years in a show. You have to do two years in a show. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so there's no way to learn it, except you know the the techniques and the I guess the pride in your job, um, of which a couple of times I've been a little ashamed of myself because I'm a terrible giggler. Um, and there was a couple of times in Phantom. It was a it was terrible because all the principals, we all had the same sense of humour. So the slightest thing could happen and we'd just be, we'd have lost, we lost it. It was terrible. You're off. And you didn't want to. It wasn't like we ever went out there sort of trying to muck up or make people laugh or anything. It wasn't that at all. We could be absolutely focused and whatever and then somebody would do a little trip or something and it was like everybody saw it and we all saw it and it, oh it was just we used to have nightmares about it terrible there was one there was one I, I'm sure everybody will know in in Phantom where the Phantom keeps sending letters uh, notes and often Madame Giri is the one who presents the letter and they're always the correct letter with the correct writing on the letter but you, of course you know it. But one night the props person gave Meg Chilcott the wrong letter and she came on and gave it to John Ewing who opened it and just saw... And his mind went completely blank. He couldn't think of anything wasn't what he expected. to say. And he's looking at the wrong words. It's like you know trying to do two things at the same time. And um, so he just gabbled for 32 bars. He shot a phantom... And we were hysterical 
and I, I'm ashamed of that. <laughs> when I, you know, see things at the Princess or something or a theatre that we were in and we were laughing, I think, oh my God, it's so up close and personal. We must have been so obvious and we thought we were, you know, hiding away, I suppose. But, oh dear, yeah. It's quite an unusual job though, isn't it? That, you know, that at uh, a quarter to nine every night you're going to be passing that person. Yep. As you enter that door. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's, that is weird. And some people get, you know, I, my, I didn't really have any superstitions, uh, or I don't have any superstitions, except that I always have a soother before I go on. Really? Just yeah. for, for the throat, for the voice? Yeah, just to get the spittle going or something. Right. But now it's become a thing. You know, I, I have to go and buy a packet of soothers. Yeah, even if I'm anxious. Yeah, without even if I'm doing one concert, you know, one singing one song in a concert, I have to have a soother. Yeah. Stupid, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's important to create your own work too, I suppose, in those periods of, yeah. of no show. Yeah. Because um, you've well, been a writer. Yeah. Or during shows when you're doing that's that's when it's nice to do because your creative juices are flowing. Um, so yeah, I was always writing shows, directing other people's cabaret shows. Um, uh, yeah, it was great. It was great, and I I, I love doing. I love doing, which is what I'm doing at the moment again. I'm doing a lot of different things um, rather than you know just being involved with one show eight shows a week and rehearsals and phone calls and emails and <laughs> texts and everything that happens nowadays. It's a 24-hour job, seven days a week. Um, but I'm loving just doing different things. You know, there's a couple of projects, performance projects that um, I'm working on with friends and teaching and, um, yeah, it's just, it's great directing and um, I'm loving doing different things. I remember seeing a great celebration of Kurt Vile that you did with... Uh John O'Mahon and, and Mark Jones, Jones, three violins. Yes. Oh, you, did you see it? Yeah, I did see oh, it. Yeah. yeah, it was Chapel Off Chapel, I think. We started Chapel Off Chapel. That was, um, it was an idea of Nancy Cato, actually. Um, she needed something to go in a, in the chapel, and um, she just came up with the idea of putting the three of us together. We'd never worked together before. Um, I'd, I'd worked a little bit with John, never with Mark. And uh, so, yeah, we just came up with... She said, "Can you? I think a, a show about, you know, the music of Kurt Vile would be good." And so I can't remember who said, "Oh, we'd be three vile men," and um, so that put a little edge to it, you know, and uh, which Mark Jones in particular loved because he loves all that sort of stuff. Yeah, we had a great success with that and made a, a CD as it was in those days. Yeah, Joe starts again. You Joe can. starts again. Yeah, that was um, that was a play called Dating Joe that uh, was, again, was on at the chapel uh, when I was part of the production, uh, artistic production team there. And uh, somebody said to me, oh, you should do an act, you should put together your act. And I thought, oh, yeah, maybe you don't. Maybe I'll do a little bit of Dating Joe in the second act or something like And then I thought, actually, why don't I try and rewrite that for a musical? And, and so we got permission from Mark Fletcher, the playwright. playwright. And, um, yeah, I turned it into a musical with, with Dean Lotherington. And... It was it was great fun, yeah. Of its time because it's about. I suppose it's so of its time now that you could do it, and it would be obviously of its time rather than old fashioned because it was about in the old days when you'd send in a videotape to a dating agency, yes, yes. Um, and they'd send it out to prospective people and all that. So it was about this guy 
of a certain age, you know, over over fifty, who lost his lover to cancer, not AIDS, and um, and had decided after about three or four years that he might be ready to try and start dating again, and, and the difficulties of doing that in the age of you know having to film yourself and sending videos and. Um, for a person of that age who wasn't particularly good at the technology yeah. and finding somebody and, and moving on. And so, yeah, so it was called Joe Starts Again rather than Dating Joe. Yeah. The role of resident director fascinates me. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a role that you've filled and spent many years in the theatre. Yeah. Jersey Boys, um, recently Come From Away. Come From Away, Adam's Family, two seasons of Jersey Boys. The Boy From Oz. Boy From Oz. Lemus, um, Oliver, uh, yeah, it's uh, you're the caretaker, effectively, aren't you? You are, you are, and and a lot of it becomes the psychological upkeep of the company as well, you know, and, and that's draining. I have to admit that that is, um, and you are responsible for maintaining the the standard of the show that as it was originally directed. So there's not a huge amount of artistic license that you have as an input in it, which can be frustrating sometimes. The the appeal of it from a directing point of view, I suppose, is is working with the understudies and recasting and then getting the new cast up and running and going. That's that's fun. That's nice. Um, the day to day of it, you know, is can be difficult. Actors always say they want notes, but they don't really. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so you have to navigate doing that. Um, but yes, I, I did it for a long while and I'm glad to be resting from it, I have to yeah. say. How many uh, times would you be required to watch the show every week? Look, it depends on the producer uh, and how long the show's run. You know, For the, for the first six weeks, it's every, just about every show ready. You might not see two shows in a day. Um, because there's always cast changes, there's always new people going on for the first time, you know, as the understudies get up, they go on. So you're seeing it a lot, a lot in the first, you know, probably two or three months. Then it can sort of settle down a bit. And as I say, depending on the producer, you can see it three or four times a week, plus the rehearsals, uh, and not have to be in the building all the time. Some producers, you, even though you don't have to go and see it all the time, you have to be in the building all the time. And that's where the psychological upkeep of the company comes in. <laughs> because you see people coming off, you know, complaining about the fact that somebody looked left instead of right on that note and it's ruined my performance. <laughs> I'm overdoing I'm exaggerating, but, it's, but sometimes it feels like You're that. like a de facto parent, actually. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. I mean, and I guess from the days when, you know, as I said to you, it, it used to be just fun. You know, you'd go on and if somebody new was on, it'd be great fun. And um, I think there's a little of that that's gone a little bit. And I don't quite know why that is. Um, Just the sheer fun of it. Maybe it has... uh, Maybe it's got a little bit more... I'm I'm searching for the right word, but I'm thinking corporate or something. I don't know whether it's also um, set uh, that everybody gets a little... Um, tense if things aren't exactly the same blueprint as they were last night. It's important to laugh at work, I think. You've got to have fun. Yeah. You've got to have yeah. fun. Um, and some, most of the time it is. You know, most of the time it is. And most most of the time people are lovely. But 
sometimes they're not or it just gets a little tense you know and unfortunately the resident director is part of the team that has to massage that you know and that can be tight and draining and you're a problem solver too I guess uh, yeah if, uh, you know an hour before and people are phoning in sick or yeah. you've got to do that puzzle oh my god yes How, what covers do we put in yeah, there yeah, and how does it affect the yeah. show and yeah rehearse. and who's ready and then you get somebody say why aren't you putting me on you're always putting that, that person on and you have to have the conversation about well they're probably our first choice and you know I remember in Oliver I had a terrible time with an actor um, who just during rehearsals decided that he was going to do his own interpretation of this role that he was covering Nothing like the interpretation that the, the, the director had, yeah. had directed, you know. And I had to sit around and he was like, why won't you just hate me? Well, you won't put me on. And I said, look, I've told you, you can do your interpretation of this role when it's your role. But at the moment, it's not. You're covering somebody and the rest of the actors are expecting you to be in the right place and give them the line in the right, you know, the way that you're supposed to, it's supposed to be delivered. There's a little bit of movement in it, but basically you, you're expected to sort of replicate a similar performance to the person who's playing the role. But this person just didn't get that at all. And I had to say to him, look, I'm sorry, but with this attitude, I will never put you on because it'll be on my shoulders, you know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and understudying is a, a whole new ball game too. It's a whole, you know, it's, it's a mindset that you have to get your head around. Yeah. Uh, and some people are really good at it, and some people are not. Yeah. Yes, they they take that role assuming that that this is going to be the big chance within their reach. But yeah. really, you're just a standby in case of emergency. Yeah, you and sometimes sometimes people will move up if somebody leaves, and they yeah. might take over. But the other thing is that a really good understudy or swing, um, and or swing, uh, they're really hard to find. And it can be much harder to cast an understudy than it is to cast the person playing a role yeah. because you're only looking for one thing. But with an understudy or a swing, you're looking for somebody who can be five, six things, yeah. you know, and they're harder to find. Yeah. And, and that's the frustrating thing about being an understudy. I mean, you know, that happened to me uh, once and I left. I'd, once I realised that, you know, it was the first time I went... Yeah, that's what it is to be an understudy. Um, and I'm, I'm never going to get that role. I didn't have the profile for it. And so I decided to leave. Um, and I think that was the best thing to do because I didn't want to stay and be an unhappy cast yeah. member. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, understudies and swings are uh, worth their weight in gold, really. Did you enjoy your time heading the music theatre course at Victorian College of the Arts? I did. Training a for, new generation of yeah, students? For most of the time I did. For the institutional part of it was sometimes very taxing. I mean, um, they didn't really understand what we were doing at the VCA uh, when the music theatre course came in. We weren't classical singing, we weren't classical dance, we weren't classical theatre... And so there was a little bit of snobbery towards it when it first came in. What it, you know, it's not an art form. Um, but there've been very successful courses in music now happening around. The, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But you know, back when we started, really, when it was a foundation course, and we were always trying to move it forward into a degree, um, there really was only Whopper and Ballarat in those days. There were only two choices. Um, 
and it's that thing where people who, who are training classical music or people who are training classical or contemporary classical ballet, they may not, and certainly the drama department, they may not go to musicals. Yeah. So they don't see the value in it. Uh, they didn't see the value in it. But, you know, slowly, slowly, slowly we became, we proved our worth financially. You know, the course made a lot of money. Um, and the rigorous training and the success of the students proved, you know, even when we were just the foundation course, um, the success of those students was, was a pretty high strike rate. So we were able to then, and we had a... a, a uh, the head of the uh, the music department actually at the VCA got behind us, and uh, and the uh, the accountant or the, the financial administrator he was very much behind us too, and so we finally got it through. But it was a struggle, and then of course you know at the end of the first year we were told it was cancelled. Yeah. So then came you know a year of really fighting, and that was that was a strain. Uh, Margot family and I were <clears throat> oh dear it was hard because we had to we had to um, go that sort of line of you know you contractually weren't allowed to say anything bad so we had to, whatever we wanted to say we had to say it yeah we had to be very diplomatic about it and uh, I think I, probably, I was the strident one um, and said really whatever I wanted because I think I could really fight for it because I knew that I could I could go back into into the industry. You know, I was still in the industry anyway. I was still doing things. Um, so if they wanted to sack me, I was like, well, who cares? You know, I'd rather fight for this Something course. Something you believe in. Yeah. And so we we got it through, and it it reinstated, and is now you know, and it's very successful. But it was a struggle. But yeah, it was great, and. Uh, you know, I still keep in contact with most of the kids that uh, in those, especially in those initial years, and that one year when we were all fighting for the course, they're all dear friends and colleagues now. You know, we've yeah. been in shows, working on the same shows and things. So, which I always told them, you know, I said, well, "You're not students; you're colleagues. You're just not working yet." Yeah. Um, but you will be. You know, we'll be working on the same show together at some stage, and we've done that quite a lot, which is lovely. What are the essential components of the industry that you try to impart to the students in that course? Uh, that it's not easy, as in it's not just a matter of having the best voice. Um, I think I was suffered from that myself a little bit. I just assumed when I was young that you know, I was a good singer, so I thought, well, it's all going to be great and easy. And um, It sort of was in that I kept working, but it's not that simple. You really do have to work at it, you know. You have if you haven't done a, a dance class, thing, you can get yourself to a dance class because there's it's a maintenance of your skills. There's something it? you're going to have to do, yeah. So the training, if you're here, if you're spending three years of your life, you might as well train hard and learn everything you possibly can. Um, all genres, all styles of music, your history. You know, I think they. If if I was there now, um, I'd be making this podcast. Uh, you know almost like a weekly thing that everybody sits down and listens to well, the people I, that you've been talking to. I think Tyron Park does. Good. Which is lovely. He's con- communicated Abs- Absolutely, too, yeah. absolutely. So hello to the students at VCA. Uh, hello to the students at VCA and Tyron. <laughs> Tyron's a great friend, of course, So, uh, but I, I didn't know he was doing that. But 
that's so much a part of what because we stand on the shoulders of the people who came before us and I think because of the instantness of the world at the moment I don't think the kids naturally look back as as we did you know I mean we or we'd have you know the next album would come out and we'd have parties yes you know those great I've got chorus line <laughs> you know let's all come around and we'll listen to a chorus line and 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 we knew who this person and I was a, a crazy person in that I would read a program from the very first word of the program to the last word of the copyright da, 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 da. no matter what it was the advertising the all the stage management the, whoever they were in it because I knew that someday it would probably be good for me to know somebody's name you know um, but not just from a sort of a uh, place of wanting to get ahead it was just I was just so interested I wanted to know who the dresses were you know and then you work with these wonderful dresses and you talk to them and they've had incredible careers yeah. you know so it's great when you know the industry that's I think that's what I wanted to impart on the kids because being they, in the industry you should know the industry and they've got access to YouTube and streaming they can do anything they can that we can any perform yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly um, you know when, when the YouTube and all that first started we could suddenly see these incredible clips of people that we'd only dreamt of seeing you know before and well you'd have the video machine set because <laughs> you know on the Mike Walsh show or, the, or Bert show or something there'd be a performance performing you know and the beta beta tapes do you remember yeah. beta tapes yeah. Jerry Herman would be there doing a, a medley and there'd be Perryman and Turner yeah. and Bartholomew John and Bruce Parrott yeah all that yeah. Um, and so I, I think it's wonderful to know your history and and I think also from you know doing shows I mean I've heard you know Nancy and everybody talk about this standing in the wings and watching people um, that made us great observers too so that when I see things on YouTube or anything now I, I, I go oh that's good <laughs> oh I like that ah that's good she didn't move her face she didn't move her eyes when she said that line and that's that's how she got the laugh or whatever it is you know um, and that's a, that, I love that I love that sort of looking at every detail and that showbiz yeah I remember um, Gary Ginnivan telling me he was in a Vita and Paddy Lapone came out to yeah. to play a Vita yeah. for a while and there was a wonderful moment what's that song to Christian Dior me yeah, yeah. yeah. Is this and, the... and yes and yeah. she threw a scarf over her shoulder just as the the, the spotlight fell to catch her in silhouette before it went to black. Yeah. But she used to put a weight. A weight, a lead weight in it. At the end of the scarf. Yeah. And just throw it so there would be this beautiful silhouette. Yeah. And it would land on the beat. Yeah. That was her thing. In the, and she, it wasn't in the costume when she first arrived and she asked for it to be put in so that when she threw it, it went da 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 boom and it landed at, when, at the, the button of the you know, the piece you were singing. I think that attention to detail. Oh, it's fantastic. fantastic. But that's yeah. theatre. Yeah. You know, I, as a kid, I remember one of the things that absolutely convinced me that this is what I wanted to do was, I think it was at the end of My Fair Lady, you know, I washed my face and hands before I come, I did, and that slow curtain coming down. And the curtain came down and hit the stage at exactly the same time as the conductor cut off the, the orchestra. 
and I thought, oh, that is magic. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so, if, if there's anything I ever do now with a house curtain, I'm so it's like, no, you cut it off too soon, you cut it off too late, or the, you know, the call is the call is wrong or whatever. Because that bit of magic when that curtain just bounces on that last beat of the bar. Or marrying some action with a, a part of the score, you know, yeah. that's there for a reason. Yeah, yeah. What's happening on the stage to yeah. complement it? Yeah, it's right. fabulous. Well, Martin, you're a key part of our arts heritage, oh, our music theatre heritage in Australia, and it's been fantastic to have this conversation. I've loved it. We've had this date on the uh, calendar for a while. For a while, so yes. I'm so glad we've done it, and uh, thank you. It's a pleasure, and thank you, Peter, for doing what you're doing. It's really marvellous. What an extensive career in a vast array of roles by my guest today, Martin Croft. Martin has certainly made his mark and I thank him for such an enlightening conversation with me in this episode, episode 198. We're nearing 200 and we'll be celebrating with very special guests in that episode coming soon. You've been listening to Stages with Peter Ayers. Please take some time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Here we go again, sounding like a broken record. And you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Wooshka, Spotify, or wherever you find your favourite podcast listening. Check out the Stages website too at www.stagespodcast.com.au. Thanks for joining us. I'll catch you next time.